Hi everybody, this is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. You're listening to Rowan Prant Method, where we talk all things fitness, mindset, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design so that you can live a high-performance life. On today's episode, we have Emmanuel Anthony, who is a human behavioral specialist. Welcome to the show, Anthony. I'm Emmanuel. Thank you. That's, that's uh, all right. That worse, today. Uh, <laughs> I've read it through Facebook. Has it happened before? It, it happened earlier today too, though. Really? Somebody said, "G'day, man, Finny," and then I think halfway during the interview, they went, "Oh crap, it's Emmanuel." Uh, <laughs> well, but, I picked up on but, it pretty quick. Yeah, but I've been getting it my whole life. I mean, Anthony sounds like a first name, and then you listen and you go, "Emmanuel Anthony," or that must be Anthony must be his first name. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah, been a common pretty, theme. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Have you done any work on it? Uh, you're not. You're not the first. So. Uh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'd love to hear more about the work that you do. I know that you're obviously a practitioner of the Martini method. I don't know a lot about it. So would love to hear about that, what you specialize in. I know self-worth is a priority to you. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Well, uh, for the last oh, 26, I believe, 25, 26 when I started this, I'm 38. So it's approximately 12 years now. Yeah. For the last 12 years, I've been working with clients one-on-one and one-on-many. So it's a couple of thousand clients now. But this journey initially started, like anybody else that is looking to assist other people, it doesn't matter if you're a personal trainer or anyone else, quite often you have certain challenges within that field that you're trying to resolve within your own life. And then by finding out and being inspired by those tools and resources, you end up branching out to help other people. So for me, I wanted to overcome some of my own challenges growing up as a kid, feeling unpopular and um, having challenges with my father emotionally and having some low self-worth because I didn't feel that I was able to achieve the things that I wanted to. That led me down the road. I know everybody would want to increase their self-worth. I guess I obsessed about it a little more than everybody else and went to you know some very long stages of basically 20 hours of study for certain periods of my life for different mentors to find out how is it that I could do that within my own life and achieve those results. And today, how can I teach people to do the same thing? That's fantastic. I've had this discussion with someone recently where people are weighing up what's more beneficial, education or experience. And I think the combination of the two is a dynamic duo. And you've clearly had the experience. You overcame adversity yourself and you sought your your own personal growth. And now you're helping others on that journey. Well, interestingly enough, I kind of fit in between that as well because um, if I look at, say, schooling, for example, it never really resonated with me. And not because I didn't do okay in it. I did okay at school. Um, I almost died just before I finished school. So I remember I ended up having to have, to have two months off, recover from hospital and come back because wow. I popped my lung. But um, when I came back, I absolutely blitzed the subjects that I'd done, which was graphic design. I was pretty good at English, etc. But I just did maths for the sake of it because I needed it to get into industrial design at the time, which is what I was interested in. But when I looked at all of my marks, they had kind of written down a whole bunch of marks. And I thought, well, that's not cool. I've spent, um, what, 12 or 13 years studying. I'd like to just be able to be given what my exact mark is because I can't from there go, I'm going to become a doctor. I didn't have the subjects for it. Mm. I just wanted to be um, kind of evaluated for what I had accomplished after that period. So, so that never really- Sorry to cut you off. 
yeah. continue. What led you to the transition to becoming a coach or working as a human behavioral specialist as opposed to the other path that you were working towards? Well, I guess that's the second part of it. Um, when you leave school, you have a TER in Australia. But uh, when you get into life, you find out that there's a lot of things they didn't teach you in school that could mm -hmm. help you with life. And for me, that was managing my emotions, definitely managing my finances um, on top of that as well, and then learning how to get realistic about what I wanted to do with my life, something that I'd be inspired and energized and enthused to do on a daily basis um, that would create real financial abundance. So at the age of 26, I had um, kind of mastered the social area. I was doing doors at nightclubs, um, uh, knew a lot of people, and that area was growing. And then I just found that there was a lot of pent-up emotions from the age of probably five or six towards my father. So it's a good 22 years worth of stuff. But I hadn't resolved it and I was hanging around more people. And if I didn't figure out how to resolve this, I felt like it was a kettle that was going to explode. And the wisest thing for me to do is to figure out how to resolve my emotions. So I started off like most other people uh, looking at personal development online, free content. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And eventually I started attending free workshops. So if Tony Robbins or somebody came to town and um, writing diligent notes and that became a 24-hour thing. But then eventually uh, a friend of mine said, there's a guy called Dr. John Martini come to town and I'd love for you to come and watch his talk. I think you'll really value it. Yeah, interesting fact. I've, heard, I've never met him, but I've heard a lot about him from a friend, Jason Webster. Many years ago, he said that he was amazing. So uh, it's great to work with him. Yeah. Well, he's the number one human behavioral specialist, um, Guinness Book Record holder for most books read by um, any human being, and he uh, teaches in over 100 ologies. He's what, what a we mentor. Call yeah. So we call him a polymath, um, <laughs> somebody that has uh, expertise in a multitude of areas, not just one. Um, in that. Uh, at the same time, uh, he's a multimillionaire that travels the world on a ship that he owns called The World uh, with celebrities and um, all kinds of influential people. And uh, he hangs out with uh, Nobel Prize winners and things like that and um, just studies all day and teaches. So um, he was amazing to meet. But uh, I went and saw him speak and it blew me away because I'd seen speakers before, but nothing like this. And that's when I realized there were levels to the game. And some people were clearly at a higher level of evolution. And in personal development, there's fluff stuff that can be greatly marketed, but then there's some real stuff in there that can really help you create profound change. Well, I attended the Breakthrough Experience, which is one of his premier workshops, and uh, dissolved 22 years of baggage towards my father in four years, came back to Melbourne because the workshop was in Perth, and my father's been one of my best friends since. Wow. That I love and respect. He never attended the workshop. I just altered my perceptions of him and came back. But the minute I did that, I realized that whatever this man had helped me do, I wanted to do that for other people. And if I could do it in four hours by myself learning, I could definitely get a ex level of expertise in that and help people to do that in two or three hours and change their lives permanently and forever. Now, that is a really, it's an amazing and outstanding achievement because most people go throughout their lives holding on to this baggage, this excess stuff, these negative emotions, past experiences, trauma, limiting beliefs, everything, and they just carry it with them as baggage throughout their life, and it affects every decision that they ever make. And I know there are many options. I'm not discrediting any of them like counseling or psychology or anything like that, but people spend years in therapy and get nowhere. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I've got pretty um, strong opinions on this, but the reason being I'm in the field. 
and when I first started, it was with NLP, timeline therapy and hypnosis. And then I worked closely with psychologists and psychiatrists and just worked my way through the field. We've calculated that I've spent over 350000 um, on personal development and uh, studies in the last 11 years out of my own pocket. But the whole idea behind it was that I wanted to acquire tools, resources, and methodologies that could create change. So I used it within myself. And then whatever worked, I kept. And then whatever didn't work, I threw out. I found that most fields, 90% of it's fluff. It's got mm. some really great theory to it. But when you apply it uh, into application with clients in a clinical space, it doesn't achieve the results. And then we're just blaming the clients and saying, well, they're messed up. So 90 say 90 to 95% of my clients come to me in the first conversation on a discovery call, they ask me, what am I going to do? Because I'm like the seventh person in line. They've already been for six or seven therapists to some degree. So I believe, and I've said this openly, a professional is somebody that achieves results. And the, if you look at a professional athlete or anything like that, they achieve the results in a faster period with much more efficiency and a higher percentage rate than a regular person. So if we're going to call ourselves professionals in a field, the results must be the tangible outcome within that. And the Martini method was the one thing, because I'd see 100 clients have a certification, go through that and apply it, keep what worked, get rid of what didn't. And it wasn't until I got to John's work that my client's results went up by about 70 or 80%. Wow. So the minute I said that, I went, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. Um, and then started applying that with clients. And there's a process for grief. There's a process for overcoming emotions towards yourself, other people, events, situations, or things. And that's that's basically everything you'll experience in your life. In thousands of clients, that's everything that it comes down to. You'll say it's something different, but by the time you get specific on it, it's a charge towards yourself, somebody else, an event, situation, or thing. It's amazing when you go down the rabbit hole when people have a particular belief that's governing their life, where it stems from. Obviously, a lot of it comes from early childhood trauma or perceptions or experiences similar to your experience as well. I'm curious, what differentiates the Martini method uh, compared to something like conventional life coaching? Because obviously, there is NLP, hypnosis, timeline therapy, matrix therapies. There's so many modalities. You can even go looking at EFT. Uh, A lot of them work for a lot of people. You know, obviously, it depends on the practitioner. Uh, as opposed to just the tool, but what is so successful with the Martini method? Well, one of the things that I think people kind of get wrong is understanding that these are all different shops. One's a fruit shop, one's a bakery, the other one's selling Nike shoes, but they're not the same thing, although they look like the same thing because they're in the um, mind space. So when I got into NLP, I realized that it was a set of tools and techniques that they taught and it kind of mishmashed together and um, that was uh, attempting to help people with certain things. But then when I applied some of the principles in there, they kind of worked sometimes and didn't work other times. And, and then I realized when I worked behind the scenes that they were really about the upsell. They wanted to upsell as much as they possibly could. So I looked at that and I said, well, I've tested that with over 100 clients and it's maybe a 40% ratio in in certain areas, but the rest of them just don't work at all. So I said, well, that's that's just doesn't work for me. Then I learned to feel called timeline therapy and that was phenomenal. Results went up to about 50%. But once again, when you look at the research that they have within that, there was a, it was like they were skimming and understanding and showing you what it was about. In fact, uh, when I finished, I'd speak to the practitioners and I could explain what emotion was in great detail from physiological, psychological, or biological standpoint. Uh, but none of them actually knew what it was. But they were doing a methodology that was balancing methods. And I said, mm-hmm. um, emotions. I said, clients are going to ask you about this stuff if you haven't had an interest in going deeper than what they taught.
support you. And if you just want to pass the test, that's fine. But if you really want to delve into this field, you're going to have to merge in different ologies. Once I met Dr. John D. Martini, because my, my usual way of learning is to deconstruct something and find the holes in it, I couldn't find any holes in anything that he had. And then I spoke to him personally and said, you know, I've deconstructed a lot of things and been able to find where its maximum usage is. I can't find that with yours. What's going on here? And he said, well, I studied the original writings of a field. So let's say psychology, the original writings by the renegades that created it. Then I studied the complementary opposites to those of the people that actually wanted to have the thesis and the antithesis. And then he studied the fields that were correlating to them because he found that you sometimes would find holes in that field. So you'd have to do that same process with, um, so if you're doing psychology, you may have to understand human physiology or the autonomic nervous system and things like that. And that's how we ended up with a hundred different ologies, but he studied it all. And in doing it all, that's what actually allowed him to be able to see what withstood um, the test of time and what was just a fad um, within that. So the minute I saw that, I went, he's got over 100 courses and you can study the human cell for four days in great detail or you can study how to create change in great detail. But this man has gone so deep into that many different ologies and not only is he producing results, but he understands how this whole thing connects. So I just went further and further down that rabbit hole. But the biggest thing for me was the results for clients. Um, a client comes in, they've, you could say they're experiencing um, grief of a loss of a family member and within four hours we can have that dissolved. That blew my mind away because I didn't have anything like that in NLP. Uh, but here I was doing that as I was learning in the first year and just watching people let go of things. Um, and then I watched depressions and anxieties just dissipate and dissolve within one to four sessions. And it just it completely rocked what I thought the original model for how the world existed and what those mental illnesses were about. So it'd be hard-boiled. You'd be very hard-boiled to tell me. Uh, that they're concrete things that a person has to live with after 11 years and a couple of thousand clients now. Now, I agree with you because I've seen some transformations that have been absolutely extreme and dramatic and life-changing in a very short period of time when done effectively. But a lot of people that have been living with these issues such as anxiety, debilitating anxiety, for example, or depression, for such an extended period of time, it almost seems far-fetched that it can be let go in a matter of a couple of hours. Well, that's two different perceptions we're talking about. Um, I've been doing this day in and day out, and I've seen it so many times, um, over a thousand now, that it's like breathing air. It's just part of what I see on a daily basis. So I'm extracting information from my experiences, and I've got 11 years of that. A person that I speak to for the first time on a discovery call uh, who's never heard of the Martini method has to compare what I'm doing to something else. Mm. So they'll grab onto whatever they've got. There may be five, six different unsuccessful types of consulting or coaching, et cetera, um, or psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever it is. So the minute that I explain that we're here to produce a result, that's what I guarantee. And if we're not doing that, then what's the purpose of us consulting? It just doesn't fathom because they haven't got anything to register or grip onto compared to what they've been doing mm. within that. So I completely understand a person saying that. And the, one of the things I said to my clients is uh, we're following a science that I didn't create myself. This methodology has been around for over 40 years and hundreds and thousands of people uh, utilize this work not only on a yearly basis but throughout the time that it's been created. Um, John travels the world and teaches it. But um, they're going to believe that there's an element of trust in me to create the result 
Whereas for me, it's a science and science is reproducible. So it's not me producing the result. It's the application of the method and the science behind it um, that produces a result. So I understand that and I respect that a person um, is attempting to do the best they can to resolve their challenges. But if you've been for seven or eight different people and it hasn't worked, it's really hard to not be fearful of the same thing happening again. A lot of people do get burnt, particularly when they try and find or access help and it doesn't work for whatever reason. Sometimes it's not the modality because obviously everyone is different, but you know there are some pretty poor experts in all fields in life uh, that we all come across. You know, there's good chiropractors, there's great chiropractors, and there's also ones that sort of leave you hanging. It's the same with any industry. So what yeah. sort of problems do people come to you with? You've mentioned anxiety. Obviously, there's elements of trauma. What sort of problems can you solve with this methodology? There isn't anything that I've seen that we haven't, as long as there's a human perception, because all human perceptions actually derive from the same thing. So if somebody says to me, I'm experiencing, um, I'll list a couple, but I'll also explain where they come from. I'm experiencing anxiety, depression, grief. I was raped and I'm holding on to negative emotions or associations. A person believes that they've given me the root cause, but they haven't given me the root cause. Quite often, they've given me the symptom they're experiencing, but it's not the root cause. Because if I speak to 10 people that say that they're experiencing depression, I'm going to find there's 10 different reasons as to why that person created that symptomology consciously or unconsciously um, inside of them. One person may be their father passed away and they've been depressed since then. So it's uh, mixed in with grief. Somebody else just had a breakup and now they're experiencing the grief of the relationship that they're in. Somebody else has low self-worth um, or didn't have a relationship with their father. So the, the word depression doesn't really resonate with me that much i've got to find the root cause and once i have the root cause it's the negative emotions that are associated with that that the person wants to bring into balance and then have the ability to resolve challenges like that in the future should they arise and the minute they do those two then it's fine um, in that but uh, that's really what's most important so i work with all cases because the minute you create a perception, it's a physiological and psychological response occurring inside of you. In fact, I can, I can make it even clearer. All human perceptions uh, that are highly polarized come from the amygdala. It's a more primitive part of the mind. We have two parts of the mind that are very important when I work with clients. We have the executive center, the forebrain. It's a much more evolved part of the brain. Um, this part of the brain can see a balance of positive and negatives equally. Uh, it's irrational. The word rational comes from the word ratio, uh, seeing a balance of both positive to negative. And it allows you to forecast into the future and see a balance and bring uh, normality to the central nervous system, the brain, and the autonomic nervous system. That's what regulates your chemicals and hormones. The animal mind, the amygdala, on the other hand, uh, it's a pre uh, historic kind of um, really primitive part of you and it's not that we're trying to get rid of it because if you were to get attacked by a lion it's the part that you'd want to be active but the animal mind it wants to avoid a pain or a, a predator and it wants to seek prey which is pleasure and it's hedonistic in its living standards and as long as we get addicted to wanting to avoid half of the world and run to a pleasure and avoid a pain, then we create psychological diseases and disorders. So all perceptions come from that original thing. And the minute I'm able to find what the predator and the prey is, what they're labeling that, for example, my father passing away is negative, him staying alive is positive, then we have what we're working with and bring it into balance. That is a very interesting perspective. Now, I am familiar with 
uh, the neocortex and the amygdala and the brainstem. So I worked with a man named Stefan Friedrichsen, who was an absolute weapon in the field of working with traumatized youth. And he used to discuss how a lot of people that have experienced trauma operating from what he re uh, referred to as the lizard brain. So they weren't using their smart brain. It was a very simple way for young people to understand that they weren't thinking really clearly when they're making decisions. I found that fascinating and I've used it ever since in any work with trauma. So you taking it another step where you're identifying what the actual, the pleasure and the pain is and then coming up with strategies to be able to work with Bring that. those into balance. Both okay. of them have two sides. Yeah. So, um, trauma is the perception that something that occurred in the past has more pain than pleasure, drawbacks and benefits, disservice and service to you or somebody that you care about, in other words, others. But the truth of the matter is whatever occurred had two sides. No such thing as one-sided event. And every single time you perceive something, so this will be a great um, lesson. I teach this to people on the phone on a daily basis. I'll be teaching this tomorrow at a workshop. Emotions are created in the following format. Something happens externally outside of you. So it could be anything. And you perceive that through your senses. I believe we've got hundreds of senses, but we're only aware of five of them. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Martini was I was uh, listening and talked about um, the senses that they're discovering and adding to the list. But um, uh, see, touch, hear, feel, taste. Uh, we have receptors. We take in that information. But then the brain takes that information, which is balanced, and then at times polarizes it. But what it does is it creates a perception and then specifically a ratio of perception. So a ratio of positives to negatives. So if something happens in a room, I want to find out exactly what you're feeling and how. I just say to you, can you write all the positives on one side and the negatives on the other? If you write seven negatives on one side and one positive on the other, you've got a seven to one ratio slanted towards the negative. Well, that uh, initial perception gets transmitted through the body and goes through every part of the body all the way down to the cellular level. But one of the important parts that it goes through is the autonomic nervous system, which is made up of a sympathetic and a parasympathetic, a fight or flight and a rest and relaxation. Well, you just said activate seven times more fight or flight and one times more um, rest and relaxation. And since the autonomic nervous system's job is to regulate chemicals and hormones, now we've just completely deregulated it and exaggerated certain parts of it. You know, every emotion communicates through specific organs. So anxiety, for example, is adrenaline through to the heart. If you just ask your body to create seven times more adrenaline to your heart, you're creating age, you're aging, you're creating disease, um, you're creating an imbalance in the body, this chemical hormone distribution, you're creating a lot of challenges. So the body does two things in order to bring you back into balance because it has to let you know its number one primitive is to keep you alive. So it's going to occupy time and space in your mind. That's your psychology. It just means um, the study of the mind. And it's going to occupy time and space in your physiology. That's your body. The higher the ratio of perceptions in extremity, the higher it occupies time and space in both. And most people don't understand that and they're thinking that emotions are there to get rid of and that they're negative things. But quite often, positive and negative emotions are actually feedbacks to imbalances that are creating disease and disorder in the body. I think a lot of people underestimate the link between emotions and how they manifest in the body. And touching on what you said, there's a lot of confirmation bias where people obviously they have that pre-existing belief that they've made in their mind based on their reticular activating system at some point filtering through information through the senses like you mentioned. But they look for more information to support that particular belief. And like you said, there might be seven in the negative but one in the positive and that doesn't really make for a very happy life. Well, two things. One, uh, we have a confirmation and disconfirmation bias 
because we have a we have false positives on the positives when we um, have a confirmation bias and false negatives on the negatives because let's say for example somebody has an infatuation most of the time people think about resentments but let's think about an infatuation mm. you meet a woman you're really into her now you exaggerate a whole bunch of positives and start telling your <laughs> friends about them yeah but your friends look and they see her and you know she's not really their taste and they're thinking well you've spent 15 minutes telling me how good she is but i don't think she's that great to be honest with you mm. they've just got a different taste so they've got a bias on the way that they're seeing things but anytime that you exaggerate somebody else's worth you minimize yourself because you only put people on a pedestal that have things that you don't see equal to what you have in yourself if you see them equally you're just a regular person so if you exaggerate the positive in somebody it's because you've got a confirmation bias for all the perceived positives and you've got a disconfirmation bias on the negatives, you're aware of the positives, but you're unaware of the negatives. And later on, because you can do that for the first part of the relationship, we call it a honeymoon, but give it a, a month, a year, a couple of years, eventually that's the reason why people start resenting each other because they actually see the other side. And now instead of just having the confirmation bias for the positive, they can go the other way. They've got a confirmation bias on the negatives and having trouble seeing the positives. But the truth of the matter is that both are always there. Uh, it's just wise to balance our perceptions. With somebody on a pedestal, you're dating a fantasy they can never live up to it. You're just going to rip them down in tall poppy syndrome anyway. Mm, those unrealistic expectations carry over so many times. So basically, people need to look at things holistically and embrace them, flaws and all, for their positives and negatives and everything and weigh up everything and make a decision about a relationship. Well, yes, but it's. I agree with everybody listening to this that says, that's really great, Emmanuel, but uh, I've got a lot of things to do in my life and I can't just sit there and stack up benefits and drawbacks on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, and I say, uh, that's true. That's why people pay me. Um, but if you train your mind to do it enough, it will become a very unconscious thing that will activate more, um, more and more throughout your everyday life. So I understand that it's very easy for me to say on the phone, but it's not until I take people through the application of that. So a good example is I'll, every client I work with, I've got a rule. When they consult with me one-on-one, -on -one, you're only allowed to work on your biggest challenges and work your way backwards. You're not allowed to work on small stuff and work your way forwards. There's a couple of reasons. One, if they work on something small, they could leave an entry level of my consulting or programs and say, yeah, that was all right. I could have probably dealt with that myself. And you know what? They would have been correct. But if we did take something like 10 years worth of baggage that they have towards a certain person, I, I just worked with a good friend of mine recently who had, I think it's about 15 years worth of baggage towards her mom, has completely ignored her, barely speaks to her. And um, uh, myself and my fiance, who's also accredited in the Martini method, balanced that out with her in we could have done it in about five hours, to be honest with you, but because we were consulting over a weekly basis, it was about five weeks. And just before Christmas, uh, in she said, for the first time in 15 years, I can't wait to see my mother and say thank you and I love you. Wow. And she was, I, I would have been trying to ignore her and now I'm actually ready to open my heart to her and say thank you because I can see all of the things that I biased as being negative also had a benefit and all the things that I was infatuated with and exaggerating had a drawback. And now I can see that she was just being authentic, but I labeled her in certain ways and compared her to a fancy or what I thought she could be. No mum could ever live up to that. And she's a mother now and she goes, I, my daughter did that to me. I never live up to that. So, um, so as we bias things and have disconfirmation biases, we create our reality. But if you learn how to do the work, like working with her, as stuff has occurred in her every day with work and other things, she goes, I'm not as um, charged at stuff anymore. And I said, that's, I said, are you seeing the other side of it? She goes, yeah, but I'm not even trying to do that. 
Because when you work on big stuff and expand your awareness, it naturally occurs with other areas in your life. It has a flow-on effect. It certainly does. And I think even I wanted to touch on this as well with the seven areas of life. And when someone focuses on one, the others tend to improve. Yeah, but we can also go the other way where we exaggerate one side because every human being has a unique set of values. I'm not talking about honor and integrity and things like that. Uh, They're symptoms of you living congruently with your values. So my highest values is family creation. My fiance is currently pregnant and creating a family and a home with her. We've been trying for four years. Um, We finally have a a baby in the, a bun in the oven, I think they say. And my second is human evolution, development and growth. So 12 hours a day, this is what I'm doing because it gives me energy and vitality. And then the third is physical mastery, mainly around golf and a little bit of weightlifting these days. Anytime I do those things, it's high within my values. Anytime I do anything against that, it's low within my values. So it's wiser for people to align with what's highest in their values and bring balance to their perceptions. And that's what um, helps bring a degree of evolution to what they're, um, to their life and resilience. I forgot what I was talking about. What was the original question, by the way? Well, you've actually put me onto another subject because I love discussing values because I feel that most people actually don't live in alignment with their values and often struggle to identify them. Obviously, I throw out buzzwords like family and things, but a lot of the time their actions and behaviors really don't correlate with the values that they think that they have. How can you help people uncover what their actual values are? www.drdmartini.com and click on the values section. There's a 13 questions on there and it's a deconstruction of your life. Most people will live based on outer authorities and inject those values into their own lives and then attempt to live by them foolishly only to create symptoms within their physiology and psychology attempting attempting to bring them back to authenticity. In fact, um, I'll go as far as to say that every symptom in your body is attempting to bring you back to authenticity. That's a whole other subject. So we can have a, a deity or a religion or a culture or a society or friendships. We can have layers of these, but we attempt to live within their values. I have no interest in that. I'm here to be authentic because save my father, for example, if I attempt to live within his values, I'm going to build resentment towards him as a feedback mechanism to get me to live more congruently with what's valuable to me. So you always decrease your self-worth every time you attempt to live in other people's values. You know, or other people try and live in yours unfoolishly. But, and every time you try and attempt to live in other values, you procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate. Uh, five minutes can feel like five hours, so time and space horizons expand. Whereas when you do what you love and love what you do, um, time and space shrinks. Five hours can feel like five minutes. You're rewarded with energy and vitality instead of feeling drained. So these are symptoms that are trying to help people to do that. So if you follow that values determination, it's going to ask you questions like, what do you think about? Not your negative thoughts, but what are the three primary things that continually come into your mind that are most inspiring to you? What do you fill your personal space with? Whatever's highest in your value, you'll find a way to put it most in the space that's most personal to you. Where you spontaneously organize, discipline, reliable, and focused. There's 13 of these questions to deconstruct your life. Then you put three answers for each, 39 answers, and you take those 39, you find the similarities, group them together, and you end up with a hierarchy of highest to least and percentages on that. So I do that every single month because it's not worth guessing or assuming what my values is i'd rather have absolute clarity and certainty in what they are so i can align with that and live that month congruently with whatever's meaningful to me do they change over time for you are, yeah so 17 to 20 oh actually i don't even say grade 4 to 26 it was social mastery because i spoke 
uh, fluent French. I didn't speak English when I came here. I had um, challenges learning how to communicate to other kids and I felt like a social outcast to a certain degree. I had friends, but I didn't feel confident enough and my self-worth. So it was, it was definitely around social mastery. But then I got to a stage where I was doing doors and nightclubs and had uh, you know, a lot of friends. If anything, I was almost out every night of the week. Um, in my teens and then I realized that I hadn't managed my emotions and that became a void because your values come from your voids what you perceive to be most missing is what becomes most valuable it's a balancing act that's what I was saying about the seven areas of life you can spend too much time in your vocation and forget about your physical mastery and then you've got diseases you can spend a lot of time in your physical but not doing what you love and you've got psychological diseases mm-hmm. you can spend a lot of time in your vocation your career as well as your financial and neglect your family and you'll have a divorce the real key is to have balance in all of them but um, as that void became fulfilled, I then moved towards um, working on psychology in the mind and myself. And once I fulfilled that void after a couple of years, I wanted to build business and help other people. So it's definitely stayed around human psychology because even when I was into socializing, it was I really wanted to – I used to stay up in year 12 and listen to people's – my friends' problems and um, offer them solutions. I was like an underpaid psychiatrist um, for <laughs> – well, pretty much my whole life. And then I always used to say, uh, people um, gravitate towards me with their problems. And then I realized, no, they don't. I listen to their problems and ask them more questions to get them to talk to me more about it. Mm. Because in that area, I'm inspired by that challenge and wanting to help them solve it and then observe their human behavior to see how well I went. So my whole life I've been doing this. I just finally gave myself permission to get handsomely paid to do what I love and love what I do at a higher degree. See, that's a balancing act because so many people out there, obviously there's terminology like Ikigai where people want to find their purpose. A lot of people know what they love doing, but they can't find a way to really make it profitable and monetize it. So they work the nine to five, something that pays the bills, but they're really not happy with it. And the other things are like a pipe dream and they put their dreams on hold. What advice do you have to someone that, to be able to find that happy medium where they can get paid for what they love. The first thing I'm going to say is there is no human being on planet Earth that doesn't know what they truly value. There are just people that squash it or push it aside because they don't perceive that they could create the life and lifestyle that they desire um, or, or a few other factors like upsetting some kind of ad or authority or figure um, that they're trying to impress like a family member by doing a career because that, they perceive that. But in Working with clients, when I get them to do the values determination and I get them to do it every single month, after six months, they go, this is pretty self-evident. The same answers are arising every single month. And as they arise, I can see that's what's most valuable to me. I just haven't figured it out. So when I, when a person asks me that, I say a few things. Number one, do your values determination every single month. Let's see what the scientific data says. And make sure you answer based on your values, not what you think they should be, because then you're going to be giving me somebody else's outer injected values. I've got no interest in that. I want to find out who you are authentically. So if a person does it every month, start, the data starts to build up, and then they start to see it, and they go, well, that's what's our most gives me the most amount of energy and vitality and inspiration. That's where I'm most organized, disciplined, reliable, and focused. Great. Then the second thing I'd say is let's have a look and find a strategy for you to be able to create the same degree of financial abundance that you have right now. So there's no loss of um, lifestyle within that. And that's the first stage. Once we get to that, then we look to transition beyond it. And I'm yet to find a person where, let's say I meet somebody and they're a doctor, but really they're inspired to go out and open up a gym or something. And I said to them, how much are you getting paid per year? And let's say they say uh, 70000 I said, if I offered you sixty-eight to do what you actually love, they go, leave straight away. So I can actually offer people less and they'll do it. 
But if I say to them, if I offer you free times the amount of money, they say, I'd be out by tomorrow. Not even. I could leave now. Mm-hmm. Um, so every human being knows what they're inspired by. Sometimes they just haven't figured out how to create the same degree of financial abundance if they've got children or um, you know, to be able to travel and do all the other things that they appreciate. But once they figure out a strategy, uh, then from there, it's about slowly implementing that strategy. That's probably one of the most challenging parts, giving yourself permission. There are certain self-worth exercises I've got to do um, in order to do that for some people. But then secondly, you can burn a little bit of both ends of the candle when you're doing that because you may work a full-time job, but when you come back home, you'll have energy and vitality because you're actually doing things that inspire you more, but you may work till late trying to figure out how to set up a business or study to transition into your next field. But then from there, move from part-time with your current job and part-time with the job that you're doing so that you can or whatever you're inspired to get into. So you still got finances coming in, but at the same time, as you go through trial and error, you don't have to take a massive blow because I've seen people just completely quit their jobs and try and jump into a new job and I go, that's not a wise idea. You have no clue what's going to happen next and you're not psychologically prepared. And now let's say they go from, uh, you know, somebody that's making a lot of money in a bank to I'm now going to be a life coach, but they don't understand that they have the graphic designer, the HR department, um, they've got to hire VAs and things and deal with managing staff. They would have done that. They've got 101 hats and now they the business isn't successful, they're losing money, they're dipping into savings, so they go back into what they were doing before and say, I don't know why I did that, I couldn't do it. And I go, no, your strategy was completely flawed. But if you chip away at it and go the other way and slowly build um, the business and start to find out exactly how you can make that more tangible and then go one day off and do it, then two days off or part-time, and then eventually when you're making more money in your inspired vision than what you are, and that's what happened to me. I was making three times more money. So I was like, why would I keep this initial job that's less inspiring and it's an an unwise financial decision? I'm actually making less money now. So many people underestimate what's involved with running a business. Uh, Everyone generally wants to run a business because they want freedom over their time, but they don't realize, as you said, there's so many hats that you actually wear, unless you're outsourcing and you have a team of people and you're in that position. There's a lot of work. I'm very fortunate that I absolutely love what I do. And it doesn't feel like work, not a single day. And I have clients come to me and go, you know what? I never see you unhappy. Every time you come out or we engage, you're always in a good mood. And obviously, I'm a human being that has the full spectrum of emotions, but I love what I do and I wouldn't do anything any different. Well, when you do something that you love and appreciate that's actually aligned with your values, you have what's known as you stress. It's a healthy form of stress where you embrace embrace both support and challenge. Yes. Most people live in a world of distress. Yeah. Most people are stressed. And um, they're highly stressed by what's going on because they're trying to avoid the negative and gain the positive. They're trying to live in a one-sided world, and you can't. Both sides always exist, so they can temporarily perceive that they're living within a fantasy state. Oh, my God, I've gotten rid of that pain, and I feel great, but then eventually just shows its ugly face again. So uh, the greatest way to increase resilience is to do what you love because you embrace both pain and pleasure, benefits and drawbacks, support and challenge in pursuit to your inspired mission. But if you do something that's lower in your values, you're going to end up procrastinating, hesitating, frustrating, working against the grain and trying to create a fantasy where you avoid the perceived negative and exaggerate the positive. And every time you do that, you end up with a mental disorder to one extreme or another. I think it really points out, and I correct me if you do not agree with this, but I think breakthrough experiences, I don't know the one that you went through, but I have uh, participated them in the past and they were definitely life-changing but i've seen a lot of people out there that go through this whimsical experience and they leave and they're full of motivation and the world is fantastic and their rose color glasses on but it fades away very quickly 
and when they're back in the real world with facing their troubles, facing life, facing the hurdles, they're left with no strategy, nothing to implement and move forward. Quite often they are left with the strategies. They don't, they don't just apply them because I did a lot of fields and uh, I noticed that – so when I overcame my challenges, I realized that um, – I was previously a Catholic, but not because I chose or wanted to be. It was something that I felt I had to be because my father was really, you know, kind of possessive on that. Then once I started to activate my own thinking, I realized I was actually atheist because a lot of the answers that I had towards how I wanted to perceive and see the universe uh, were not in Catholicism. It was beyond their spectrum of understanding. It was just a polarized perception in certain aspects. So I studied the positives and the negatives and what the priests are up to and everything. I said, this is out of control. I can't put my belief systems into this. Um, so as I evolved from that, I started to realize that um, we place certain belief systems onto certain things that hold us back, but we can transition and break through. But if we're given the tools to break through and we don't use them on a regular basis, because think about like a lot of these workshops I did, they had a hundred or so people that attended them. And then I'd add them all on Facebook, not all of them, but a majority of them. And then they'd say to me later, well, how are you doing? And I said, great. I said, I did about seven. I applied that method seven times this week. I can't believe how good I feel. And I go, oh my God, I was going to start applying it in a month from now. I said, in a month from now, you're going to forget the thing. You're in a workshop. We did it every single day. That's why you remembered it. But a month from now, you're going to read some of these, um, you know, scripts and things, and you're going to lose confidence and feel very lost. I wouldn't do that. So a lot of people go and attend a workshop and then put the book on a shelf, and it's kind of like a certificate that they got, and they tell people about it. But they don't apply enough of it into their own lives to see if it was actually accreditable and it's applicable amongst you know other challenges that they have, and they don't continue to do that. For me, once I left Catholicism, I was looking for something that would allow me to understand how I could perceive and see the universe and for tools that I could apply for specific challenges I was having that would guarantee me results. So that's why I kept applying them. So I think a lot of people just don't apply them enough. Why is that? So I think a lot of people out there continuously in this day and age pursuing information and with google there is endless sources of information that the with youtube and social media endless memes there is no limit to the information that you have at your fingertips so why don't people apply it they just move from one thing to the next without really any implementation there's a few different reasons um for many people, they perceive that it takes quite a bit of time to keep doing that. But I spoke to, before I came here today, I was picking up some print material uh, for a workshop that I'm teaching tomorrow. And as I was in there, I ended up, uh, this happens occasionally, speaking to the lady that works there. And then what ended up, what started off as me picking up my material ended up with about a 20-minute conversation. I thought I was going to be late for this, to be honest. And um, she was sharing different challenges that she was having, etc. But uh, we came down to the same conclusion where she said, uh, I'm waiting till the right time where I feel like I'm okay and I can manage this. And I said, well, that's just a load of crap. She goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, if you can spend 24 hours holding on to the problem, you can spend three hours letting it go because it takes longer to hold on. She kind of giggled. She goes, oh, that's true. I said, if I gave you a, a 10 kilogram kettlebell and said, hold on to it um, and you had to hold it, you know, waist high and not drop it, would you say it's easier to hold on to? You go, hell no. That thing would start to get pretty heavy after a while. So that's what you're doing. It takes more time to hold on to the problem. So one of them is um, when a person dissolves a major challenge and then they've got other challenges, um, They because it's not as big, they just run away from the fire so that they don't feel the burn and the fire catches up and then they run away again. 
So that's what a lot of people do. Um, some people perceive that it takes too much time, not realizing they're using the same time to um, not overcome their challenge. And then there are a list of people that just want other people to do it for them. Um, and each has their benefits and drawbacks. I prefer to teach people how to manage their own emotions so they can get rid of me, unlike a psychiatric model where you're to keep going back. I prefer that they'd get rid of me and then learn how to do that and become self-governed. But there are some of my clients that say to me, no, I, I'm very busy. I'm a businessman. But when I talk to you, you'll help dissolve something that I had for 10 years in three hours. I'd rather pay you to do that and delegate it. Um, they, it's great. I get more money for that. But um, I'd also love it if they could manage some of that themselves so that they could um, uh, stop some of those mini problems from coming biggie problems as well. But there's a range of reasons. There's also secondary gained. Mm. Uh, sometimes people will Often not, overlooked. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's... I remember Martini talking about a guy that said he came into him and said, I want to lose weight. And after a while talking to him, he said, you have no interest in losing weight. He goes, well, that's true. And he goes, you have some other reason above your health. What is it? And he said, well, if whenever I lose weight, my family gives me a lot of crap because they're actually all really big as well. And uh, I don't want to lose their love and their connectedness. So their love and connectedness in his model and perception was worth more than losing the weight and dying. Um, so, yeah, secondary gain. So, there's a range of different reasons as to why people will do it. Uh, sometimes it's my job to figure it out because it's so unconscious to them. Have you heard of the term region beta paradox? No. It's a quite, I've only just recently heard about it. It's, a, it's recently becoming quite popular. A friend, Matteo Luizetto, contacted me and asked me if I was familiar with it. I wasn't at the time, but I'm sure you're, you'll be familiar with the concept as I was. In terms of sometimes things need to be so bad that it inspires change when it's simply just a little bit of unsatisfactoriness, even if it's undesirable, people just tolerate it. They stay in jobs, relationships, all these things that are unpleasant, but it's not bad enough to make them change. But you might meet a devout Christian or something and you find out in the past they were a severe heroin addict, but it got so bad, it got to that point that enough was enough and they were ready to make that transition. So honestly, in a way, sometimes it's better the worse it is because it inspires change instead of living in something that just isn't satisfactory for an extended period of time. Yeah, so I, um, I use different words for it, but I completely understand that. People have said to me at times, you know, this person's really bad. I said, send them my way. And I go, you really want to deal with that? It's very draining. And I said, the sometimes the person that's hit rock bottom is the best person to work with because they're going to do everything it takes to get out from there. Yeah, but everyone's Whereas, rock bottom is different. Yeah, whereas a person that is, if a person doesn't perceive they have a challenge or a problem to work with, then I can't work with them because I don't have anything to work with. It's going to kind of float around. So the person that comes in at that stage, sometimes I just say no because I select my clients. I guarantee results. So I can't see everybody. They've got to be at a certain standpoint or willing to do certain things. So there are people I say no to. Because I worked, I had a gentleman. I was came back from America with Renee maybe about five or so. Oh, no, it was actually, yeah, about five or six years ago. When we came back, uh, we caught a taxi and we started speaking to the guy and, you know, they got onto what we do with ourselves. And then uh, when I told him what I do, he started telling me about his son and the range of challenges he was having. And I said, well, here's my number. Feel free to, um, you know, connect him and I and I'll have a conversation and I can be honest with you and say whether he would be a great match or not. So I spoke to his son and within five minutes, I could tell his son had no interest in working with me. In fact, his son was more interested in just kind of letting me know that he was going to use me to punish his dad. So at the end of it, I said, thank you. I appreciate your time. I kind of cut it off early with his son. And I said to him, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with your son, but I don't feel that he's at a place or a point where he's going to 
commit to the work and you're going to pay a couple of thousand dollars and the only thing you're going to have is a couple of thousand dollars worth of resentment. So um, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say thank you for the opportunity, but um, I'm going to have to say no, the environment isn't correct for the work that we want to do. And if I've got to push him that hard, it means he doesn't want to do it. And he first got offended and said, so my money's no good for you. I said, no, your money's perfectly fine. I enjoy making money. That's how I make my living. <laughs> However, I would rather have your son come in at a place where he's really willing to do the work. But right now, he just wants to talk to me um, as a way to punish you. And he's going to hold back on a lot of stuff. He goes, yeah, I felt that. And I said, that was your intuition trying to let you know the very thing that I just discovered. So I said, I'd rather be honest and not make money and find somebody that enjoys what they're doing and I can really enjoy my work. Um, or if he wants to speak to me later on, definitely I'll keep the door open but i don't feel it'd be fair to you i don't think i'm going to be inspired and he's going to feel like he's trapped in this process this is a common theme that i find any professional that has a high success rate they screen their clients to make sure that they're actually wanting to make a change because if they're doing it for someone else or an external motivation which has nothing to do with how they actually feel about it for their kids parents partner whatever they really don't want to change. They're not ready yet. So the likelihood of being successful with any intervention is probably pretty low um, or short term at best. But even one of our other guests that we had, Glenn Munzo, he screens people similarly with his AOD counseling program and have a massive success rate. But the same thing, when I work with clients, if they have a problem, I ask them, how is that a problem for you? And a lot of the times we find that it's not. And if it's not a problem, they're not going to make any changes. Yeah, but you don't. You don't actively create a change in something you don't feel you have to change because your body works and it's highest to least efficiency. You'd send that towards somewhere else and work on something else that's more valuable to you. Mm. So, do you I'd get many people, people that come to you feeling that they should do something? Yeah, but it's still that's why I have a discovery call because once again it goes back to the screening process and I just have an open and honest conversation. I've been very blessed for eleven years to work with so many inspiring clients and know that I don't have a deficiency in clients coming on a monthly basis that why would I turn this into something I dislike when I feel I'm one of the very blessed people in the world that gives themselves permission to do something that they love. So it's kind of like tainting my environment um, within that. So if I see things that are inconclusive towards creating change, I'm just going to bring them up and communicate about them and be open and honest with the person. Some people don't take it well or feel that it's offensive, but I think um, at the end of it, they kind of realize later on, because some of them come back and they say, actually, when I had a proper look at it, um, I can see the difference between where I was then and now, and I, I wouldn't have shared half the stuff that I did. And you said that you need full transparency. Um, you've got to have all doors open in order to be able to get to the root cause of whatever's going on. So I never really worry about offending people because I do the best that I can from a communication standpoint to let them know um, what's going on. But I think that the the, the relationships that have the greatest opportunity for growth are those of longevity that have equal exchange. So if I can't provide equal exchange or they're going to hold back from that, then um, I'm not going to commit to that. Great perspective. Now, there's something I wanted to touch on because we have been going for an extended period of time and I've been thoroughly enjoying this conversation. But I feel it's important that we discuss how self-worth uh, impacts suffering, impacts getting to a point where change is potentially possible. How can people tap into their issues with self-worth? There's a few things. Funnily, funnily enough, I spoke about this earlier only about three hours ago in America for a podcast, so it's a constant recurring theme. There's a few factors that uh, equate to having a um, 
equilibrate its self-worth because we, if we exaggerate our self-worth, we get cockiness and arrogance. That's known as a super ego. Um, and if we minimize our worth, it's the id, which is the minimization of ourselves in comparison to others and we'll usually exaggerate others and attempt to people please. But then we have uh, the ego. Uh, people think the ego means the exaggerated part of you and it's Greek Latin meaning it means authentic you. So I use it in that terminology, and I'm not trying to delete my ego. I'm attempting to actually equilibrate it and live within it as much as I possibly can. Now, there's a few things that you can do to really bring that to an equilibrated and balanced and fulfilling level. One of them is to find out what you value. Because if you do what you love, like kind of what you just said before, you naturally increase your worth. You stack mm. the odds in your favor. If I spend the whole day doing human evolution, development, and growth, I find I've got a huge value and time and space dissipates and my confidence builds because I keep solving a challenge and finding another one to solve, and then that helps build me up one step at a time um, within that. And I'm resilient towards the challenges, so I set bigger and bigger challenges on a daily, monthly, weekly, and yearly basis. So that's the first thing. Find out what you value and invest as much of your time in doing that as possible. That'll build it up to get it started. The second thing is to dissolve your emotional baggage. Every item that you don't dissolve creates anchors and triggers and anything that reminds you of that in the future is going to trigger it off. So it's like trying to walk around with invisible landmines constantly going off within that. And then they also occupy time and space in your mind. If, if we use a hard drive as a metaphor for your brain, 70% of it is clogged up. With viruses, you can you could imagine a emotional blockage as a virus because it does create disease and disorder and slow down the body. If it's doing that, then you're only thirty percent present. It's a little hard to be authentic um, or have a high self worth if you're only thirty percent present. And you'd know that um, we all know it. Anybody listening, if you think of a friend that you have as a high amount of emotional baggage, they usually don't have a lot of self worth as well. Usually retracting and avoiding things and, um, you know, trying to kind of stay somewhere where they don't speak to a lot of people because they're trying to reflect internally because of all they can't handle the external. So dissolve your emotional baggage, do what it is that you love. And then the third one is stop rejecting half of you. People are trying to live within these certain paradigms, whether it's religious or society or friendship or culture, where it says, and every culture does this. Um, I know because growing up being Mauritian, it was you do this, but you don't do that. You um, This means being a man, but that doesn't mean that. But you're trying to delete half of yourself. And every time you try and delete half of yourself, the part you're trying to delete keeps coming back. You can't be authentic if you're trying to delete half of yourself. If you're always trying to be all positive or no negative or live in other people's values and all of that. That's what I love about the Martini method, column two and nine of the method get you to have a look at every single trade action or inaction, whether you listed a positive or negative and own that 100% within yourself. And then the two columns after that um, in the, well, the other form, which is a form when you're working with other people, usually it gets you to see the other side of that trade action or inaction. So you can have love and appreciation for it. The more traits, actions or inactions, which is really your whole personality that you learn how to love and appreciate and stop rejecting the more authentic you become. In fact, I've worked with that many mothers where they were addicted to support and their children were running the household and they were resenting them, where I increased the degree of challenge that they brought to the household and then their children started respecting them and their authenticity started to grow and they started to become independent instead of juvenile dependent. So I had to increase the amount of challenges the mum um, gave, not the amount of support. Society doesn't <laughs> want to hear that because it's addicted to hedonistic supporting, over support. But the balance was what brought that in. So the minute that they honoured... Uh, the other side of themselves, the hero and the villain, the saint and the sinner, then that's when they're actually able to be authentic. 
I love this. I was looking at, I've seen some pretty profound changes when people have experienced parts integration through NLP and had that form of integration and realizing that the purpose of both forms of behavior or beliefs, they have a pretty similar goal. And if you can come to that point, then you get that integration. Yep. Parts integration, I've seen people end up crying. I've had that myself as well. Um, when they saw the truth that two things that they perceive were separated had been uh, what we call a values linking in the Martini world um, linked and they could see that they were actually aligned and they had the same highest purpose. It's a very interesting concept because obviously we're talking about needs that need to be fulfilled and values that need to be met, ideally on a daily basis. So finding healthy ways to meet these needs sets you up for success. That and also breaking our addictions to uh, feeling that other people have to meet certain needs instead of honoring um, where that's being met somewhere else in our lives or meeting those ourselves. Because sometimes we can set unrealistic expectation um, on others to do certain things. So um, for me, I usually, there's two things. Number one, um, I don't put the expectation that my fiance, Renee, is meant to be the perfect fiance because that ideology is based on a uh, subjective bias that I've created and um, she could never live up to that. Instead, I have a look. Um, there's a thing that we do in the Martini world, um, Martini facilitators and consultants, and it's called um, uh, finding your soulmate. And you write down all of the traits of the ideal um, soulmate, you know, blue eyes, brown and blonde hair, exactly what this looks like, every, down to the, the most finite detail. Once you've done that, then we have a look and see where that is in our life because there's no such thing as a loss or gain. It's only transformation. It's one of the universal laws. Um, so it, then you have a look and you realize that the bartender that I see regularly has the blue eyes and my brother has blue eyes and you find out exactly where each of these things are equally to the degree that you perceive it to be missing in your life. Once you've done that, you have a look at the form you're addicted to. You go on a pedestal and exaggerating and see the drawbacks of it. One, then you have a look at the, the areas, then the people that have that in your life, and you see the benefits of that. When you stack the two equally, you realize that what you've been comparing it to is benefits and drawbacks, and what you have in your life now is benefits and drawbacks, and you become present and let go of the infatuation. So sometimes I do exercises like that when I notice things pop up as well, and I realize that my fiance may be 60% of the ideal partner, but the other 40% is being delegated between family and friends and other people. And I'm really grateful it is because there's certain senses of humor and things that they have that I value. But when I take time away from her, I get to appreciate her more whilst also keeping a balance with them. That's a really interesting concept. So needs that people feel that need to be met by someone external or this this uh, fictional character that we're putting up there that they're looking for a potential partner or something, they're often being met in other areas of their life. As you said, the bartender. No, they're always. Yeah. They're always being met. There is nothing but transformation. The master lives in the, the world of transformation. The masters live in the world of gain and loss. Um, in the grief process with the Martini method. So when I met my fiance Renee, we were dating for a while, uh, and I say a month and um, seeing each other. She was in Sydney, I was in Melbourne. She said, what do you do for work? I said, I can't tell you, I have to show you. She goes, but I thought you were like a psychiatrist. I said, I am, but I produce results. She goes, what does that mean? I said, once again, I can't tell you, I have to show you. And I said, well, here's what I can do. I said, fly down to Melbourne, I'll do a half a day breakthrough with you. She goes, that sounds great. I said, but you've got to pay for it. I'm not going to pay for you because I don't do this just for the sake of it and the hell of it and dip my feet into it. This is what I'm most inspired to do. She goes, I can tell. I said, but if you invest for your flight, um, obviously you should be staying at my place. We're seeing each other. Um, but I said, if you invest in your flight and you come and you take this seriously, I won't charge you. 
what I usually charge people for this. She said, done. That weekend, she was there. So we did the first part of the half a day breakthrough where we um, had a look at a form that I created that evaluates your whole life from um, every decade zero to that point. Then we set a hierarchy of the highest to least so we could find the highest challenge to work on. And it happened to be one of her ex-partners. I thought, great, just started dating this girl. Now I can let go of certain triggers and anchors that she's experiencing. Actually, no, that wasn't the first one. The first one was her father's grief, the passing of her father. We had that day in half an hour. There was just a couple of little things that she was holding on to, but we showed her where that was in her life right now. Then she was comparing when she had it with her father to now. We showed her the benefits of now and the drawbacks of her father because when somebody passes away, people want to turn them into saints. And I said, what's wrong with loving them from both sides? I was saint and the sinner. So I'm trying to turn them into saints all the time. And the minute we did that, when she finished the process, she was crying tears of gratitude, hugged me and said, for the first time in like four or five years, I have no grief for my father. I'm feeling nothing but love, gratitude and appreciation. And I've gone from I can't see those qualities in him to I can see them everywhere. What the hell? She goes, I don't feel anything's missing. My physiology feels like it's like let go of something. It's enlightened. Then we worked on what two of her ex-partners after that. So we just did one after the other. It's about a six-hour day. Um, but we all of that done by the end of it she looked at me and just went you could never have explained that to me because if you said you were going to do that i wouldn't have believed you i didn't have anything to grab onto that would is similar that i've ever done in my life she goes but now that i've done that i couldn't explain that to anybody else because there were things i was feeling inside of me i'm not feeling them anymore she goes i'm actually actively trying to go back into the same emotions that i experienced and i can't find them as if they've been deleted or something she goes this is amazing and um from that day, she said, can I learn this? And I said, yes, it would make my life a hell of a lot easier to teach you how to do it so I don't have to do it with you all the time um, because I want to be your partner. I can't be your facilitator and your partner. I've got to be one. So I taught her how to do it over like two months. I just Every month, I showed her another principle, another technique. She's been, she practiced that over and over again. We've been together for eight and a half years, and she was using it so much that she advanced drastically in her career um, for the application of the work in business. And then um, I think one year, she had like, two and a half pay rises as well. It's crazy. But um, then this year, she got certified. Now she's working with clients within that field because she just loves it. And she's so good at it as well. Spending that much time around me and creating workshops and everything else. She'd ask questions. She'd attend the workshops. She'd um, uh, create materials for it. So now she's actually helping people to create change. And she's already uh, finished with her first major problem or challenge of a client which is the one i was telling you earlier the friend of mine that i got her to um take over that and yeah she was the one that did the majority of the work and got her to find love and gratitude for her mom that she hadn't had for over 10 years wow it's truly transformational it's amazing what human mind can do with a little bit of help from outside people but again a lot of the clients a lot of the stuff comes from within you just need someone to help facilitate it we have run out of time emmanuel i have thoroughly enjoyed this chat i definitely want to have you back again to talk about a couple of other things i hope you enjoyed yourself now i had a, had a great time and fantastic. i definitely yeah welcome coming back and sharing this knowledge with your viewers again definitely love to hear more so if people want to find you where can they find you uh they can head to uh, Instagram, Emmanuel underscore Anthony. They can head to my website, www.emmanuelanthony.com.au. Uh, they can also reach out to your show and ask for a complimentary 20-minute discovery call uh, where they have the opportunity to speak to myself, one of our equilibration specialists, and we do a few things on that call. Number one, we ask you, we listen to what your major challenges, obstacles, and uh, goals are. And they will explain how you got there, 
what you can do to transition out of there and what the time frame will be and what results we can guarantee. So we work in all seven areas of life, physical, financial, mental, spiritual, social, vocation, and family. And we work with all mental disorders and all perceptions. So really, you can bring anything to the table and uh, we'll be able to help you with that. So that's a great way of reaching out and touching base. Absolutely love your work, Emmanuel. Thank you very much for being on. And thank you, listeners. I look forward to hearing from you or the next listener that we are, the guest we have next week. Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody. Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam. Tune in. Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee. And something nice to eat Yeah, the yeah, pizzas are great In fact, all the food rates Down at Freddy's Caram Caram Station Street Come on, come on, come on Down at Freddy's now Come on, come on, come on Down at Freddy's now It's a pizza It's a mystic pizza